Amen. So the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians. We've been going through this book for several uh, weeks, maybe two months or so. If you've missed any of it, if any of it kind of uh, catches your attention and you'd like to look at the other series, that stuff's online, podcast, video, whatever you want. But today we're in chapter five, and let's begin with verse one. It says this, now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. Right, so just pause here because he's, calling back to what he just talked about a little bit. Last week we discussed this, this description of Jesus' return when believers will be united with him. And Paul says in what we would say modern wording would be, hey listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know you guys already know this information. We We went through this information. You all have encouraged each other with this information. Timothy returned and he told me how you're walking through this information. Good for you, I know you know this, but I'm gonna tell you again. And it teaches us this important principle in spiritual formation, and that is that repetition is necessary. You parents of children understand this. Uh, A thousand times you need to say the same thing, and then maybe, maybe, there will be some sort of similar outcome from what you have been encouraging your children in. Repetition is necessary, and it is good and it is valuable to remind us of the biblical teachings that we're familiar with. There's a temptation to chase after the things that are the deep mysteries that combine a lot of random stuff in secular culture. But we have scripture with us and the basics of the word is what we should prioritize and not get distracted. We need repetition because it's easy to lose focus. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to forget. We walk ourselves through what is the gospel? Why does that matter? What is God's word? Why does that matter? And we walk through this regularly because it is easy to prioritize less important commitments. And to this young church that Paul himself planted, even he has repetition. And if he does it, then we must do it as well. Put yourself in this young church's shoes. So Acts 17 describes the church getting started. It's a great description. I've already gone back to it nearly every week that we have preached on this because it's just a good reminder to read how this started and then what he writes here. Well, in Acts 17, if you recall, Paul and Silas, they roll into the city, they start preaching the gospel, and all these people believe. So you got the Jews who believe, and they're seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And then you have Gentiles, they've never even heard of Jesus before, but they're like, this guy sounds amazing and way better than the Greek gods. And so they commit themselves to Jesus and the truth of who he is, the, you know, the way, the truth, in the life. And so you hear you have this group of people, they form what becomes the church, God's people, and they are walking in the instruction of the word. And Paul is teaching them. And it's probably great. They're like, this is fantastic. And then even as you think about it, for them, Paul is reminding them that, uh, listen, like there's persecution every time I go to, and then it hits them. And so Paul has to flee. Silas goes with them. They like, they escape town, and uh, Paul actually doesn't get to go back. And with this said, I, I just can, can imagine that if I was in that church, it'd be really easy to embrace, or it'd be easier to embrace the teachings if Paul himself is the one teaching me. It'd be easier even to know persecution might be coming if he's sitting in the room telling me, because he's like, hey, listen, look at my scar, let me tell you the story. Uh, you know, I, you know, it's like, and, and he would say, listen, if, if, if they come to the door, I'll be the first to answer it. Like, like if, it, if we gotta get arrested, so be it. You know, if we get beat up, so be it. That comes to the territory. If I'm sitting in that living room, I'm thinking, good. I don't really know if I'm in on this, but if you are first, I'll follow your lead on this one. Well, then Paul has to leave town because the persecution got too intense. So the locals are all 
uh, well, now they need to really put into practice what he had been teaching them. And I can imagine for them that the repetition of the basics was so valuable because it's in those moments of persecution, it's in those moments of discomfort that you kind of run down to like the bare minimum. What are, what, are the, what are the things that I need to remember and do? And so Paul is reminding them of this even in this letter. This reminds me actually of like a baseball coach. Baseball's around the corner. I love that sport. And here we have, right, like every time, I played for years, and every time we'd get um, in, the, in the halfway of the innings, the coaches would always say the same sort of things, right? Like swing through the ball, you know, watch the ball all the way in your glove. Like every single inning, we're hearing the same stuff. Coaches know, and we are also children, but coaches know, or we gotta keep saying the same thing or, my, or the kids are gonna get distracted here. And same for Paul. He's reminding them of something. He starts off concerning these things. You have no need to have this written to you, but I'm gonna tell you anyway, because it's what we do. Now I thought, like, what would it be that if I were to write something to all of us as a church family and say, listen, you don't need this, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. There are a few things that stand out as I think about even what we have shared and preached and, and, and uh, prioritized the last six, seven, eight, nine years. One of those is that God's word is true and it is your daily spiritual nourishment. All day long, I'll say that. If anyone's ever wondering, that is what you start with every morning. It's better and healthier for you than even eggs that are like raised on your own little patch of grass outside. Second, Second Timothy says this in chapter three. We have the, uh, the verses on the screen here. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is definitely one of those things, right? If I were preaching to the choir at Legacy, which we don't have a choir, but all you, you know, you all are the choir, because we sing together as a church family. How about that, Maddie? Well, it's wherever you are. A second thing I would, I would uh, be preaching to our choir would be to prioritize the Great Commission. Right? In all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the book of Acts, is the Great Commission. And Mark 16 summarizes it this way. Go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Succinctly put, right? A third one would be this. Serve one another in humility. Every day, all day long. Philippians 2, 3 says it this way, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And I also have a fourth one, but I'll mention that at the end. And so we have God's word is true, prioritize that great commission, and serve one another in humility. For Paul, he is focusing on this. So let's look at what he's gonna say. In verse two, in chapter five, it says, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord, or the Lord's return, will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything's peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And there will be no escape, both to the lady in, in labor, right, and also to, to everyone else. Verse four, it says, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. What an interesting way to describe that at the end. Now Paul's words parallel Jesus' words. Some of the, it's, it's one of the last sermons that Jesus preached before his crucifixion. And it's recorded in several of the gospel accounts. And I like to read a lot of it at length. I'm gonna skip a couple verses. But I'm gonna work through this because he expounds even more than Paul's 
words here, but it, it runs right alongside with it, particularly if you take this in chapter five as well as a little bit of uh, last week in chapter four. And so listen to Matthew 24. We have the words on the screen as well. 20, uh, verse 23 starts off, then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I've warned you about this ahead of time. So if someone says, look, uh, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or look, he's hiding here, don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and, and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes or when he returns, right? Like this is essentially describing how if you were told like there's a Messiah, like he's returned and he's somewhere, which people claim this and they're all over the world at different points. Jesus is saying like, don't go figure it out. Trust me, you're gonna know. Everyone's gonna know. The whole world's gonna know because it's gonna be so volatile and earthly, right? Like a planetary moment for the son of man's return. So you don't even have to go hunting around for him. Like, we're all gonna know. Well, verse 30, it says, and then at last, the sign, of, uh, the sign that the son of man is coming will appear in the heavens and there will be a deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet. And they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. This is literally another description of last week's passage. Verse 32 says, now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that the summer is near. Well, in the same way, when you see these things, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. Now, Jesus' words continue, verse 36. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Great verse for everyone who claims to know Jesus is coming back and they pick a day, right? Just so, you know, Jesus doesn't even know when he's returning, so... Verse 37, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. Now, now this next section reflects probably most precisely what we were reading in 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, in those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't even realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day the, your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. A faithful and sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that his servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, you know, my master won't return, he won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying, getting drunk, 
The master will return unannounced and unexpected and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him to the places with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so that's Jesus' words, uh, which, you know, the end are very, uh, very descriptive there. Um, and here, this describes a, a larger portion of what Paul was saying in chapter five. So Paul, in his words, and again, even Jesus did the same thing, he gives them key application. In other words, in light of this information that the Son of Man can return at any point, and then in light, let's see, chapter five, it says like, in light of the fact that there would be like these labor pains, there's coming upon a woman and, and there will be no escape. What are we to do? How shall we now live in light of this theological truth from scripture, specifically Jesus' words and, and Paul's and his letters here? Well, verse six, Paul answers this. And it says, so be on your guard. Not asleep like the others. Also stay alert and be clear-headed or be clear-minded. Some of your Bibles might say, be sober or sober-minded, playing off of the language of not being drunk. Verse seven says, night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk, but let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. So again, this is very similar to Jesus' words because then he goes into the description of a faithful servant versus one who is just, you know, irresponsible. And same thing for us. What are we to do? We must be alert and we must be faithful. When the master returns, will he find the servant faithfully harvesting? Will he find the servant faithfully managing? If indeed we are God's workmanship, as Ephesians 2.10 says, are we living that out? Are we fulfilling and walking in the good works that God has for us? Living this way involves the, the words of verse eight, right? We belong to the day, let us be sober-minded, and then, it uses other language here, put on this breastplate of faith and love, put on the helmet of the hope of salvation, put it on, like the way you put clothes on each day. Paul mimics that same language at length as well in the letter to the Colossian church. He goes on and on about what we must take off and what we must put on. In fact, it's so good, I'm gonna read it for us. It says this in Colossians 3, 5 to 15. Put to death, so not just put off, but literally put these things to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God's coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Right, the old self would lie to one another. The old self would have malice. The old self would have slander. Not anymore. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So then Paul tells the church at Colossae, but the same language, he probably preached these same things, right, different places. It's just in Thessalonians, we have a shorter description of it. In Colossians 3.12, it says, put on then, 
So not only what do you take off, but what do you put on? As God's chosen ones, put on whole, uh, God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, humility and meekness and patience, bear with one another. If anyone has a complaint against each other, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are uh, you, you were called in one body and be thankful. So Paul uses this language here and he uses it in the other letters as well at different times. What are we to take off and what are we to put on? We take off that which is soiled, right, spiritually and we put on that which is new and, and clothed in righteousness. Yesterday I was changing my one-year-old daughter, right? So I have this, I've got three kids, one of them's one, and she, uh, when she woke up, we got her a new onesie, got her a new diaper, she was fresh and clean, looking real great. Lynn was out of town, so she, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm taking care of my kiddos in this way, like, if Lynn could only see, see her now. She'd be like, wow, she's looking sharp. Well, by four o'clock, she didn't look that way. She got like watermelon juice all over her, because she ate, and it's like, ate it like a, bear eats like something. It's just like, it's just everywhere. It's crazy. And we were outside after the rain stops and there's like red clay all over her and uh, it was just a mess. Well, oh, sorry. I don't know if that was me. No. And so she was, she was a mess. And uh, so what did we have to do? Well, before bed, eh, a little earlier than that, but we, 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 took, we took off all the nasty stuff, changed the dirty diaper, got her all cleaned up, got her fresh and put her to bed for that. Well, friends, we gotta take off that old, nasty, filthy garment, and we put on what Christ has given us. And Paul's using that same language here, reminding us specifically with the, the words of our faith, love, and the hope of salvation. Well, <clears throat> my question for you is, what, what are you still wearing that needs to be taken off and thrown in the trash or the dirty clothes basket? I think for a lot of us, well, we're in denial, but you're like my kid who's walking around with a dirty diaper. You stink, take it off. Let Christ take it off. He's gonna throw it in the trash, get you a new one. But you're just like, I'm fine, you're not. It smells. You all laugh, it's all of you. It's a, it is, it's all of us. So what are we wearing that we, need to be take, that we need to take off? That's one reason when we gather and we worship and we have God's word, it allows there to be the conviction, and the purity, the cleansing, and allow us to take it to Christ. Well, lastly, there's a few verses here to read, and this is how we will wrap up here. These, uh, verse nine starts off, and I'm actually gonna switch uh, translations on, on the screen here for a moment, so if you're following along and wondering why I skipped, that's what's happening. It says, for God has not designed us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Well, in these verses, we have the simplicity of the gospel summarized. You hear the word gospel used a lot in, in church world. You, use, you, you might hear it even in other places. It's usually used in a um, in kind of a um, sacrilegious way in pop culture. But what is the gospel? Well, how is one saved? The wording here, through Jesus Christ. Through the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is peace with God, our Father, through Jesus Christ and him alone. And why Jesus and not someone else? Well, as the verse says, because he is the one who died for us. He is the one whose body was brutally murdered on the cross. 
He didn't die to make good people feel better. He died to take spiritually dead people and make them alive. And I love that Paul doesn't just say that we obtain salvation in Christ. He does use that language in other places where it's just talking about the, the, uh, the, the gift that we receive. But in this case, he actually goes to, and he combines it just in, in a short sentence, but he describes what we came from, what we were rescued out of, what are we protected from, what we avoid for those who are in Christ Jesus. The language is the cup of God's wrath, right? This wrath of eternal separation from God, that which, and Jesus references it at the very end uh, there of Matthew 24, there where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous judgment that every person will receive if they're out of Christ's covering, this is eternal uh, for us, but Christ, his blood, it's eternal atonement for us. It pays the price. His body was emptied of blood on the cross, and that's what we can receive. And this leads me to that fourth reminder that I mentioned a moment ago. If I had a, a fourth thing I was gonna preach to the choir, it would be the word grace. I could probably argue pretty well in a debate that the word grace is the most precious word for a Christian. It's so meaningful to, to Lynn and I that we, we forced it inside uh, our, our daughter, Atlas. We, we gave her like that crazy, you know, like millennial parents, we just give kids like weird names. Well. Uh, we named her Atlas Everest because it's like so fun. And then we were like, but we gotta put grace in there because grace describes what God offers from the highest point of the world you know, to the whole globe. And uh, if you don't know, grace is uh, the, the biblical definition for this. It's a free gift that I don't deserve. We do not deserve Christ's grace that he offers us. If you work hard in your, in your um, employment, you could argue that you deserve that paycheck. You know, you worked for it. But when it comes to salvation, you can't work for that. You can't pay the atonement for your, for your sin before a holy God. You are, you are stained to the core and so the grace that Christ offers us, that free gift, it's a gift that covers uh, our sin. It's a gift that we can receive and we receive it by our belief in Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus, but also his work for us on the cross. And it's this idea of grace that I would come back to day in and day out. Have you received the grace that Christ offers you? Preaching to the choir, we gotta receive that. Oh, and we receive that as those who are ignorant of who Jesus is, and then we come to faith. And then we, we receive that daily, if you're a follower of Christ, daily allowing the grace of God to be at work within you. And like it's one thing I pray when I get up in the morning, and uh, I try to get down on the ground. Lately, my knees have been hurting more, so it's harder to do that, <laughs> like when it's cold. But um, getting... Uh, get before the Lord in the morning and I just pray and I ask for God's grace to be at work in me, not my own strength, not my own work. So as the band comes forward here, um, you guys come on over here and um, Maddie, if you can just uh, play maybe a little background music for a moment 
and Leo, would you lead us? Uh, I'm gonna ask Leo to lead us. Some of you might be hearing this idea of grace and this description of Jesus and his work for us, and maybe you're asking, well, can we get him a, a mic? Where's that mic at? Do you have one? No. There we go. Thanks, Bree. Maybe you're, maybe you're hearing, I'll get it for you. If you're hearing this and you're thinking like, well, how, how is it that I receive the gift of salvation, this gift of grace? I asked Leo to walk us through that process and to allow ourselves here this, this morning as we conclude with worship to respond appropriately. Thank you, Pastor. And I'm gonna go back to your sermon a little bit here because there were three times that you mentioned scripture in a long period of First Thessalonians as we're going through, then went back to Matthew and then to Colossians. Guys, if you're walking into a church and they are not using the word of God from the pulpit, walk out. We don't need to hear what a newspaper says. We don't need to hear what a website says. We need to hear what the word of God says. And through my life, I've tried to hide it in my heart that might not sin against him. And I've done many sinful things. In fact, I always say, ask my wife if you don't believe me. Because the ones I love the most, I treat the worst. But the one thing I appreciate so much about Adam, he always uses scripture to tell us what uh, is going on, not out of his own mind, but out of the word of God. So I've memorized pretty well uh, through my years at a local Baptist church. I grew up a Baptist, but I'm not, I'm probably more Baptocostal than I was Baptist. Because I always have enjoyed praise and worship. I always have enjoyed, uh, you might see me in my car going down the road singing, praise the Lord, the windows are up, so you can't hear it. But uh, in my mind, in my memory, I've always remembered the Romans road. And, you know, he came into his own, his own received him not. So doing the book of Romans, he went through what it's like to become a Christ follower. He said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. How many, who does he talk about when he says all? Everybody in this room, everybody outside this room, everybody in the world, all have sinned. We can't live up to what he's done for us. That's why grace is so important because of that. So we all have sinned. Then Romans 6, 23, but the wages of sin is death and the gift of God's eternal life. We deserve death. If it wasn't for that grace, we would die without him. And, and kind of what, what we're talking about going through here is I want to absolutely make sure before we leave this room, we're gonna you know, bow our heads and close our eyes. And if there's anyone that doesn't or hasn't ever accepted Jesus as their Savior, because in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's, I confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart. They raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. And we're getting ready to come on that period of the year where we celebrate him being risen from the grave. The Easter service. It's so awesome. You, like I said, invite people because this place is gonna be full of people who've never heard this great message. But for right now, I would like for everyone to, this is an old-fashioned Baptist thing. I apologize for that, but I grew up with it, and I, I got saved in a tent meeting down in Gordonsville, Virginia, by this exact same thing happening. So bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want to just ask you a little question right quick before we close in prayer. Is there anyone in this room who, as we go through these scriptures this morning, that has never said, Jesus, come into my heart and save me? I need a Savior. I know at one time Leo recognized that. And, and my wife Rita, my family, a lot of them are there. And a lot of people in here, Adam, our pastor, Maddie, everyone standing on the stage, we recognized a time that we couldn't do it. We could not do it on our own. So I'm gonna lead everyone in prayer silently. No one has to out loud pray. But 
If you haven't ever said this prayer, please. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. So if you want to accept him, please do during this time. But uh, in your heart or in your, out loud, if you need to, whatever you need to do, repeat after me. My Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I do believe that the Bible is the true word of God. That it was left here for us so we could learn about our Savior, Jesus Christ. I need that Savior. I need that Savior, as Adam just said, not just today, but daily. When I leave this place and go out into the world, I need it more than ever. So please, Heavenly Father, come into my heart, come into my life, and change it, dear Lord. Help me not to be the same person tomorrow, not to be the same person when I walk a day to day because I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. So I know it sounds like a very simple prayer, but it is a very important prayer. So, dear Lord, we ask you, ask you to lead us now. Lead us into a place we've never seen before. And if there's some here that need to come and, and tell what they've done to the pastor and uh, what they've asked our Lord Jesus to do for them or to one of the elders or to any prayer partner, I love when he just said he gets on his knees every morning and prays. There's something special about humbling ourselves before our, our Heavenly Father and telling him, I can't do it on my own. I need you, Lord. So right now as we sing this invitation song, if there's people in here, dear Lord, that have accepted him as Savior, come along and haven't ever been baptized in, into the faith, dear Lord. That is just a public showing of what you have done in your heart. So I pray for that. But again, I thank you for Legacy Church, dear Lord. I thank you for what it's done in this community. I thank you for the full parking lot. I thank you for the, the seats that are all full. And back in the junior church, dear Lord, our young people are hearing about the Lord. So I thank you for all the leaders there. I thank you for all the volunteers here that work so hard every week. And most of all, dear Lord, I thank you for our Lord and Jesus Christ who came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins and three days later rose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.